Look, I think there's cheesy ways to grow and there's successful ways to grow, but you're- Tell me the cheesy ways. I think threads are cheesy at times. I think a lot of people do like low engagement threads. It's the same way of like newsletters. What, you mean like, like ripping off like Wikipedia, Wikipedia and stuff pages? like this? Yeah, exactly. 98% yeah. of people don't get this. Yeah. Sorry, I, that was a little bit of a side. What were we talking about? Before we get to this week's episode, quick message from our uh, sponsor, Bombora. And that's about why complacency isn't a strategy. And this is something that I truly believe. You know, we all have a complicated relationship with deadlines. We resent the seemingly arbitrary nature of them. And we know that we could always do a better job with just a little bit more time. But most of us end up accepting that deadlines are just the push we need in order to make sure that we keep progressing. And the same is true of the regularly shifting deadline for the phase out of the third party cookie. You know, many publishers and others were constantly complaining that the deadline was too rushed last year. And then, wouldn't you know that Google pushed it out into, until uh, 2023. And what happened? A lot of people just fell back on complacency once the deadline was no longer looming. But at the end of the day, change is coming. The deadline will eventually happen. The third party cookie is going away. And that's why I had a conversation with Steve Lilly, Bombora's SVP of Global Data Strategy or Global Data Partnerships, about why publishers need to use this breathing room in order to, in Steve's words, kiss a lot of frogs to sort out what a workable post-cookie strategy for monetizing audiences is for them. And it's going to be different across all different publishers. Here's how Steve put it: We're essentially a massive data ecosystem, and our business model is really nothing new. We're a data co-op. So there's a lot of problems that we solve for data as it relates to sales and marketing, predictive analytics. But as it relates to our publishing partners specifically, there's two primary problems that, that our model solves, which is unknown audience. Just about every publisher we speak with has a massive percentage of unknown audience and no real cost-effective way to, to address that. The other in terms of B2B marketing or B2B audience targeting is understanding what businesses are visiting your site and what those businesses are in market for. Stay tuned after my conversation with Adam Ryan in order to hear more of my conversation with Steve about why complacency is not a strategy. Welcome to The Rebooting Show. I'm Brian Morrissey. I'm very happy for this week's guest. It's Adam Ryan, the CEO of Workweek. Very interesting new brand. If you don't know about it, I'm sure most of you do. But it's taking B2B spin in a different direction by sort of intersecting it with the entire creator economy deal that we keep hearing about. And Adam and I, I think we've, we've talked back when you were just forming work week, but we agree on a lot of like things, right? But we come at things from a different point of view. Adam, more on the operator side, Mia on more of the writer side. But I think the things we do agree on, and tell me if I'm wrong here, Adam, is that B2B does yeah. not have to be dull. And we could talk about that, about why that's the case, because I don't think you can do that anymore. And that the yep. strongest brands in the future are going to find that sweet spot between the individual and the institutional. And they're going to be able to manage the tensions that are inherent to that because it's going to shift for every brand. And the other thing is that going narrow and deep is key. I think your experience, I'm sure you've probably seen this, but when you can go narrow and deep on a topic and make it for a specific group of people, that gives you a lot of leverage and a lot of different ways to make money. And I guess the final one is that advertising is actually a great model. Adam, thank I, you for joining us. I agree on all those things. All right, so we're we'll just wrapping it's up. Over. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Was it. <laughs> it was great. Good talking to you. <laughs> no, like let's go back because I remember you. You were kind enough to share uh, your plan for Work Week before it launched with me, and I gave you some like of my like unvarnished feedback on it. the idea because I think it's it's super good. But like you were you were the president of the hustle, but you were also at SpiceWorks and you were at Under Armour. Explain exactly within your background the opportunity that you saw that you were going to build Work Week with your co-founders in order to uh, uh, to realize that opportunity. Yeah, there's really like three, uh, the three companies I was at previously, there's like one key takeaway from each one. At Spiceworks, uh, well, Spiceworks, you could say there's like one A and one B. Uh, it was a B2B IT community. And they focused solely on the person managing help desk tickets, doing desktop monitoring, all of that, all of that role in the office. 
uh, and they had 250,000 monthly active users. We did about 75 million in revenue uh, a year. Uh, when I was there, we grew from 30 to 75 during the couple of years that I was there. It was an amazing company, mostly because of, and this gets played a lot, but I think about Spicers and I think about authenticity because everybody was referring at that time to IT professionals as like suits and ties and like all these ads from HP and Dell, like your IT pro buying your Dell, they were in like a tie. And the reality is they wear like Star Wars tees and have like long hair and tattoos. And Spiceworks created a mascot that was like an orange dinosaur and everything like embraces like nerd culture and people loved it. And it went really deep and there's a million ways to monetize and our revenue per user was like through the roof. And it showed me what like what you said going deeper can do with the one B was that they raised 130 million from Goldman. And it was during that era of BuzzFeed where everyone overraised. And I call it Spiceworks. They ended up selling to Ziff, but uh, it was a great company, bad cap table. Like they had to, they actually made a ton of money. They didn't need to raise that much money. And then because they did, they made terrible decisions long-term. And that, that inspired Workweek a lot in, in many different ways. Under Armour was this like idea to go content to commerce, my fitness pal, Matt, my fitness and all these consumer apps had over a hundred million users. The idea was, could we sell more shirts and shoes through that profitably with advertising? There was a lot of takeaways there. The two things that the thing that drew me there was when I was pitched the data play, it was like, look, we know who shops at Whole Foods. We know how many people are lifting weights versus doing hit exercises like we know how much water they have. Like we know all this data about these personas and the idea of using that to have better marketing, to create better products, to do customer research. Like I was obsessed with it was like what drew me there. The reality and the failure of that, which has is really important for work week was it was a total disaster because of culture, the idea, the vision, the products yeah. all were there, but putting four companies under one roof in Austin. Uh, which was Endo Mondo, My Fitness Pal, Matt, My Fitness, and Under Armour, very different cultures. You had uh, My Fitness Pal was Mike Lee, San Francisco, very kind of a liberal culture. Uh, Matt, My Fitness, Robin, Robin Thurston is a, a madman's genius, but mad. And Under Armour, like it was right when the Trump stuff was happening and it just like did not work. And like the people, and not only do you have the technical issues of like, well, do we use Jira or Slack? Like, yeah. Like switching that over is not as easy as you think it is. And then you have like all the cultural differences. When doing Workweek, that was a big inspiration of like, if we're going to bring people together that have already started their own journey. They already have their own culture and values created. We have to make sure there's alignment or this is just not going to work, even if the product is great. Uh, and then the hustle, uh, we uh, realize that you in media, like you don't need a lot of money. You can be really scrappy and it's just about creating great content and like high signal audiences and high engagement. And you can do a shit ton with that if you just focus on uh, creating things that people like. And that's the only reason why we had success. Okay. Oh, so no, the other ones you gave something good and then something bad, but you give nothing bad. But because I do think it's, it I is do, very interesting because I want to leave, but like it is interesting because I think a lot of times people are play that down. But when you're building something new, when you've been through a lot of other things, you take cues both good and bad. Right. Yeah. Like, so there's, it's just like, I mean, I don't have any kids, but I assume parenting, like there's, you take the good stuff from your parents and then you take the stuff you didn't like. You're like, I'm not going to do that. I think the hustle, the takeaway was like, if you look at the alumni of that staff, Kendall Baker, who I think writes the best sports newsletter in the country, was the first writer there. There's a lot of Trung, obviously, Sean Peary now has exploded. There's so much talent in that place. There also was a lot of turnover. And I, some of the probably biggest lessons there, which is not as much media oriented, was just like how to manage people and create a culture that like people actually loved it. How do you keep talented people here for a long time? Okay, so with Workweek, what did you see going on out there? Obviously, the crater economy sort of blew up. It seemed like at least everyone started talking about it, right? But usually the crater economy is, at least I always thought about it as YouTubers and TikTokers and stuff like this. I never considered myself a creator. I mean, I was just yeah. like a reporter and an editor and creator sounds like uh, I would yeah. need to be far more entertaining. You don't, you don't make any money. That's what that sounds like uh, <laughs> when you're a creator, at least like when you're a reporter, you're getting paid. Yeah. The, so I never really, I mean, I did like my first, uh, uh, whole uh spiel how substack is fucked in february 21 i never really was like a huge creator economy is going to explode type of person and i think you're seeing a lot of the pullback now because the business models were built literally for all the creators to graduate off of they didn't think about that at all you just like 
they didn't necessarily, they lowered the barrier is what the success of the creator economy was. It made it easier to press send, which Substack, Maven, all of those companies deserve a lot of credit because they lowered the barrier so much. Does that mean they're going to continue hitting that? Is it consistent? Does it pay? Does it create billion dollar outcomes? Like I have a lot of question marks around those things still, but one of the like real inspirations and it sounds ridiculous, but I'm a pretty big uh, football fan. And when Tony Romo moved from being a quarterback on the Cowboys to being an analyst, uh, I was like, holy shit, he's a way better analyst than he ever was a quarterback. And it was his insight of being a quarterback that made him so good at being an analyst. And now I think he's going to potentially win more awards than he ever did as a quarterback as yeah. being a TV personality. And uh, I think that what Substack did in the creator economy is it started to have that happen in the B2B world. People like you who were operating started to write. And it was like, holy shit, this is good. Because like he actually won. The problem with B2B, I think, with historically is the reason why it's kind of boring is because you have a lot of people that like have never done those jobs. So they're just like listening and regurgitating. They're not like coming from a point of action that's like allows it to have personality because like they don't have personality. Uh, and that to well, me, like, I don't know if they, I have to jump in there. I don't know if it's that they, they don't have personality or something like this, but no, you know, not every, but yeah, if it, you being look, unbiased I, naturally doesn't allow you to like have more yeah, uh, yeah. spiciness, I should say, you know, it's also the structure of the profession, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you're trained as a generalist for most things and then you're thrown into the, the whole profession is geared to being thrown in. You got to cover a fire, you got to cover courts, you got to, and it's a real skill set, right? But like, the problem is, you can't go narrow and deep if like you're, I know like we'll get into like the idea of deep generalism. I think that's like, I think you got to choose a lane, but like deep generalism just tells me that like maybe you read some books, but like the profession is geared towards generalists, not specialists. Right. And so a lot of times when you're, you're covering stuff, I remember having to cover tech for a little while, like real tech, not like ad yep. tech, like real tech. Yeah. I'll never forget being assigned a story to write about hot swappable hard disk drives. Holy shit. I was talking to this guy from Intel. I was like, please don't make shit up just to screw with me, man. Because like you could. Yeah. And that's when I was like, I got to specialize. Yeah. I, but, and I think that's just like what it's, I'm not blaming or like faulting journalists. And a lot of like, and this is like, I'll call it like industry dive. What they have done, what Sean's done so well is he's focused on regulatory industries that have a lot of regulation that constantly is changing. And that's need to read stuff, right? Like when you are in uh, certain industries that where government and regulations evolving and changing and impacts your job, journalists are the best people to learn from in that way of like what is actually happening. And that's how you become like a need to read. My, my thing though with Substack was like when you read, for me, I was reading Jacob Donnelly and like reading all these personality, I'm like, what makes them good is because they come from the arena. Like they were there. They use their real life examples and their bias is actually what makes it good. And that's not in like the way journalism was taught at, I went to University of Missouri, like you don't do that, right? And so there was this new type of, of content creation where I think taking experience, perspective and bias in the same way that Romo does with covering zone to zone and man to man and what he would have done he takes an opinion, but that's like what you want to hear. And that's kind of what Workweek, that's what I saw early with Workweek. And then the other trend was I, I did a call with Packy McCormick uh, in like Jan, December 2020, maybe January 2021. And he said, Adam, I want to do like a million dollars this year was like my goal. And I just like looked at everything and looked at his growth. And I was like, if you were a media company, like where we had people around you, your goal would probably be closer to 10 million. And like Packy's pretty proficient at monetizing, better than most. And I was, and it just like kind of clicked of like, wow, this content like of these folks that it's amazing, they're growing organically, all the KPIs that you dream to have at a media company, these, a lot of these operators are experiencing this in their own mediums, but they have no idea the opportunity that they have in front of them. Yeah, yeah. And that's like the sort of sweet spot. But the, let's talk a little bit about that because I think there's the, the sort of Goldilocks challenge. It's like you want to, Yes, you want like there are these opportunities and I totally agree. But the 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 question is like how do you architect the system correctly? Right. And like because 
obviously people like bundles. They like being able to just like, they like brands and stuff like this and personal brands, personalities are, are part of that. But like, I think it can get confusing. There's just too much stuff out there. And so there's a lot of like benefits to that. Talk to me about like how you decided to sort of architect the business because I think there's inevitably a tension between the institutional brand and like work week with the individual brand with Nick Sharma or Trong or any of the other or Nicole or any of the other creators that you have. Yeah, uh, that came from just like uh, what we've talked about. I historically I'd managed the editorial team at the hustle, but they would uh, they would all laugh and be like, he didn't know what the fuck he's doing. Uh, uh, I'm not, uh, I was not a creator, a writer, a journalist. I don't self-identify that way. I never have. I've been working to get better at it, uh, mostly just by bringing people like you on my podcast. But what I started to do is just do, Packy started this wave of me just reaching out to people and being like, hey, this is who I am. Would you be down talking? Uh, and I talked to about 100 folks who were writing a newsletter, doing a podcast in the spring of 21. And my, and what I was asking them was why do you do this? And like, what makes you excited to do this? And then what would make you stop doing it? And like, those are important distinctions. I think the last one is actually what most media companies don't ever ask anyone. And the takeaways were, I do this because I like the really good ones that like already had traction. Like I want to be a voice in my, like, I want to be the person in the industry. And I want to have success and uh, I want people to listen to me, attention, validation. It's just like naturally what the good ones wanted to do. Uh, the second aspect was they, uh, they also saw the potential to make a lot of money. They were like, look, I can do this. But the money was never uh, as much as important as the creative freedom. Like they were like, ah, I've been like, I talked to many people and they're like, oh, I've been offered a job here and here. But like they want me to like cover this beat or they... I have an editor that's going to like write, like edit out what I do, or I want my brand to like be able to say this and like, is that cool with you? Right. And to me, that's almost, and uh, I read a great piece by Shereen today, who your former colleague of like, uh, how to build trust in media. And she talked about basically drawing clear lines of sponsor content and editorial content. But I kind of wanted to take a different approach and say, what if we just allowed what if we trusted the creator to make the right choices because it's their individual brand at stake? Uh, and if Packy ends up having a terrible fund and everything flopped, it's because it's on him. It's his reputation, right? Yeah. And in the same way, that's what Workweek is trying to do. It's like, hey, Nicole, Daniel, Trunk, like what you put out there, like I'm not going to filter this. I'm going to trust that you're doing the right decisions. And then the question is like incentive alignment. Are they like incentivized to want to grow their brand to make sure that they're doing the right thing? And I think Barstool is a good example of this, that they just let their people go. But they're, they, uh, the difference is, I think, with B2B, it actually is a more secure path. I'm not going to probably get sued or be called a bunch of names because like when you're covering fintech, there's like just you putting memes out there is already in the 1% of like being more relatable than most people. Yeah, although you'll end up getting sued. Or threatened with a lawsuit. Anyone, I always say it's like the uh, the test of whether you're like in like the media business is when like you, you is when you get the lawsuit threat and like I, when, uh... when you lose business because of what you wrote. Because otherwise, you're in the content marketing business. If you just are doing stuff and no one's threatened you, then you're probably content marketing. That's my we, sort of. Becca, uh, who's my co-founder at Workweek, was the GM at the Hustle. Uh, she calls me uh, Adam Ryan, attorney of law, because we got sued so many times at the hustle that I would just like, we couldn't afford to pay a lawyer. So I just would like act like I was and basically oh, yeah. deal with Most it. Most of them go away. A lot of people, oh, are yeah. like, I like, I don't know why anyone goes to a lawyer to send like the nasty gram, the nasty. It's like, if not, we will be forced to like pursue it. It's like, okay, sure. Stern, sternly worded like email, but sometimes they go through and that's why it's a challenge. So the model is... Because you have a mix of people, right? And like some people have that direct experience, but some people are journalists, I would say. Like, and I think the unicorn that that you talk about, and I don't think unicorns are that are that common, uh, is uh, maybe like poolside inflatable unicorns in Miami, but otherwise uh, not so much. Is you want someone with a deep sector expertise, but you want someone who can like who can produce clear, concise engaging copy and oh yeah by the way do it every week or twice a week and do it like again and again and like 
as like someone who's done that, I took like 10 years off as an editor, mostly sending emails. It's like, it's a really hard skill. Like, I mean, it's hard. It's like, you gotta like, you build it up over time. Yeah. But like, how do you look at like that mix? Because like, there's a lot of people with incredible sector expertise who just literally, they can't communicate it. I mean, they can write emails and memos and stuff, but they can't like hold a list. Yeah, I think uh, this is the former teacher in me. A long time ago, I was a high school teacher, but like, I think you can learn that skill. Uh, and it's a oh, yeah, it's, it just takes time. It takes time. And it's also a mentality as much as anything. Like the biggest thing holding me back from writing my piece today is just like, is this good enough? Like, ah, like the pressure of like, uh, and I think that's something that like, really a lot of people don't address uh, immediately. Like we never once at the hustle, maybe this is just like bad management, but like we never once were like, tell me about like the imposter syndrome that you have writing to 1.5 million people every day. We just were like expected them to hit publish. And some people naturally trung had the confidence just to like work through that. That's rare. Uh, and I, so what we focus on, the wolf is a perfect example of this. The wolf was, uh, he's a pseudonymous creator at Workweek that covers the franchise industry. He calls himself the wolf of franchises. He was in sales, uh, before the selling franchises, we reached out to him and signed him when, which is crazy to think about. He had 45 like newsletter subscribers and had sent one issue, not exactly a journalist, not exactly a history of writing. Uh, he came on September 1st. We didn't announce him until January. Um, which is something that we've learned. Like we don't announce people, which is really when the eyeballs come, which is when the pressure comes and all that stuff. We normally give people a few months to like really start to build up. And he really took like four months to like get his feet under him. And one day he called me, he's like, it's my fucking job to be on Twitter. Like, is this really what I do now? Like I've been like selling franchises for like, this is my job. And I was like, yeah, this is your, and like, there is that moment. Uh, we have built like a creator development program that we're building out to help people like understand what the process is and a few other things. But if we can help those folks and just as much, I know Romo got help by the folks they yeah. taught him where to stand and how to do this that's what we're trying to help them and support them to do to make that transition yeah because like i mean i don't want to get into like like what kind of media brand you're building but like the test of a media brand to me is being able to grow people for lack of mm-hmm. a better word and use the intransitive it's because otherwise you're just like a, a, an ad network at the end of the day like which is interesting there's a lot of ad networks out there but like if the only thing you can provide is a cms and like some monetization one you're going to lose people and two you're not going to have as high a value and then i guess three it's not as rewarding so i mean is do you look at like work week as like a talent incubator that like you're making the bet with people that look you can keep doing this on your own or you can go there's a lot of different models out there right now but if you come work with us one you're going to you're going to grow faster like the lists because you guys you're good at like at the growth mechanics and that's important but you're going to grow as as far as the quality and you're going to get better so every single one of you asked me what one of the takeaways from the hustle becca and i uh were became amazing friends and through that time at the hustle we stopped a lot of people left uh that we thought were like wildly talented and when people start to leave a company, and this is like less media operator, more broad, but like when people start to leave, there's just this like huge shift in like culture of like, oh, well, I'm the next person. It just like becomes a snowball effect. And especially with talented people. And Substack is a good example. Like once one person leaves, everyone's like, well, is the grass greener? Maybe I should look for it. And when we were getting this started, and this is like 100% factual, we were at a coffee shop. Uh, in like February or March of 21, we had no idea what we were going to do. We were actually like spitballing, like a creating like a sales community or something. And we were like, hey, before we do this, we know last time the issue was not being aligned with values. Let's like write down of what the type of people we want to work with, like exactly the type of people that we could spend day in and day out with and fucking grind with and work for 10 years. And something that I wrote down uh, on our original thing was you can't really make an impact in media unless you're at least 10 years old. And that's my belief. Like Morning Brew is what, like uh, now seven years old. They're coming up on next year, they'll do 100 million. Like that's an impactful business and industry. Normally, I think you need 10. And the longer time horizons you have, I think the less shortcuts and bullshits and like stuff you do, which I learned from Spiceworks. So wait, when you say impact, you mean like, 
like impact as a business or like impact in I view like, it I view, a little different. When we yeah, use impact, I mean, I, those of us on the journalist side, we don't think about business. We think about the, something different. Well, I think it's like naive to think that way because if you can't afford the journalists, you have this situation that most companies are in today. And so like my piece of this is like, if you can build a business, like Morning Brew has upped their staff of journalists since they started making more money, right? They, you're able to invest in the things that maybe aren't loss leaders, but they're definitely not your margin makers when you're making more money across the board. And so oh, like yeah. to me, if you want to make an impact, like once you cross 100 million plus in revenue, like industry dive, huge impact in the space because of like the size that they got to, now they're able to like move the needle forward and take bets to move the industry forward. And that's like what's to me, I got to a point where I was just like embarrassed to be in this industry. Uh, I like debated, I jumped into higher education for a few months because I was just like, I just embarrassed by this. Like the outcomes are bad. The job is hard. You grind all the time. There's like no big winners. Everyone talks about like tech companies being better. And there was this like, huh, this is just a broken industry. And part of what like Workweek is trying to do is like, we're not big enough to take all the bets that we want to make. But if you can have a big enough impact financially, you can start to invest and shift things and move the needle to move the industry forward in a better place. And to me, that's what someone needs to come in and not say, I was so sick of tiring. One of the themes of the spring conversations I had is I swear to God, three out of four creators, I'd be like, what's your goal? And they'd be like, well, I'd love to sell the HubSpot. And I'm like, this is just so lame. Like have some aspiration here, like have like big dream, bigger, push things forward. And, uh, it just was missing. Uh, and I think that's what I mean by impact. Yeah. So let's talk about like how you, you ended up like then like building the business, right? Because you raised money, right? And like, so the history of raising money is like you talked about, like, and I know there's like, again, this is a Goldilocks thing. It's like, you need to have, you need to have capital to like get going at this. The capital is everything. So that's why I take your point on the impact, but I sort of don't totally agree because like revenue to me is oxygen. It allows you to do stuff. It's not the end goal, right? It's like, and so uh, we're that's from a journalist standpoint, but like, we're, no, I, by the way, I'm in agreement with that. I'm just saying, and like using morning brew as an example and in industry dive, the more auction they have, yeah. if you have good leaders, the more investments you can right. make to move the industry. And like, there's different ways, like, so bootstrapping, for instance, like people love to like glamorize bootstrapping and stuff, but but like the reality is like you move so slowly. It's like you talk about 10 years. If you're going to bootstrap, like it might be 20. Like, I mean, it takes a long time because if you're you don't have a lot of oxygen, it's like Miami yeah. in July. Like there's just not a lot of oxygen in, in the air. And so that's rough. Uh, you can short circuit it like with having an events business in the back end that like can churn a bunch of revenue pretty relatively quickly. But talk to me about figuring out like for the impact you wanted to have that like you wanted to go, because I think you guys have been pretty aggressive. Like, I don't know how many people you are now. I feel like every week on Twitter, at least, you're, you're bringing on someone else new, someone, another new that. creator. So one thing that we knew was uh, overall, and I wrote this publicly, it's not new, but like Disney is a big inspiration, what they did in the entertainment industry. Like if you study what he did, the guts that he had in 1955 with his brother, like a bunch of fun stories. I'm a pretty big Disney, the business of Disney fanboy. And that was like really like a North Star for work week, just looking at the overall cat. If entertainment is a category, then like business can be a category. And that's kind of like our inspiration that takes some capital if you're going to swing bigger and with longer time horizons. And we wanted to be aggressive. Uh, we thought some of the moves that we were making, uh, there wasn't comparables out there that every I mean, every company I've advised and talked to, no one exactly had similar setup and arrangements. Uh, and so we wanted to move fast because if you're a startup, that's your only advantage when you don't have a lot of oxygen. So we were, we've been pretty aggressive. We have about 45 people now uh, at the company, about 19 of those are creators. And uh, with how we're spending and growing, the idea, and this is lesson learned of like, I, I, Spiceworks had a fire sale, right? Like sold 80 million, 80 million bucks as if we did 75 in revenue because they were just going to go out of business. We're, we'll be profitable by end of year. We covered our expenses. Uh, we covered our employee expenses one month already and our paid growth is growing super fast. Uh, I think the magic is, can you find, can you find the levers that actually move a media business forward and not like the shortcut ways? And one of the most obvious ones is organic growth. And like, that's why I was attracted to, creators is because like if 
I grow 200 newsletter subscribers a week organically, and I value those unpaid growth at 10 bucks, I save a hundred grand of cost throughout the year. That's the bootstrap attitude. That's what you have to do when you're bootstrapped. If you can do that and throw fuel on the fire and have monetization aspects behind that, yeah. you can start to be really aggressive and fast, which is the model that we made. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's like something I'm always like with the sort of paid growth, like, like the morning brew did a ton of it. I just think a lot of people do pattern match. I'm sure the hustle did a ton of it. Right. Too. And like, I don't know, like manufacturing that, like in some ways, I mean, again, this is also coming from like the sort of journalist side. Cause like we, we were almost like, Oh, only losers pay for it. Kind of thing is <laughs> I have a podcast coming out tomorrow. Literally. <laughs> I think that's the topic is like the, it, only the, losers. the hate <laughs> of paid growth is like the topic of the well, podcast. I have nothing against paid growth but don't like pretend it never happened i mean come on. i totally agree i that's why i've been very public about it like i would not and you can spend i get your ads all the time like i, I would not them. be i, don't, I would I not don't be, click on them because like i don't want to cost you the money i don't want to thank up you appreciate money. that but i would not be <laughs> surprised like here's i'll use uh daniel murray as an example one of our creators we he started seven weeks ago he has grown about nine thousand organic subscribers in seven weeks. Just one of the fastest growing creators. This isn't had. making me feel good about the reboot. <laughs> uh, but he's at 20,000 because we've used paid ads to grow, right? And, but my challenge, if you have like operators on here listening, is I actually use organic growth as an example of product market fit. Like I would challenge the line of hey, thinking yeah. of like, hey, it's not that losers pay, it's that people, losers pay when you don't grow and that's your only thing that you're doing. Yeah. Now I, I was sort of like taking the most extreme side. Like I, yeah. I, in most areas, I try to end up somewhere on the middle, but on this one, like I'm probably like, I feel like we're both in the middle, but you're just on the, like the side, the side, like I'm operator. Right center. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. like, I'm just like left of center a little bit, but no, because like, I think like that's, and I think one of the dangers I would think of it is you start to like optimize the wrong way. Right. So like, you can think you're like doing a great job when like the, you might not, you're, you might miss signals, particularly early on. You got to look for signals, right? And like when you get more scale, a lot of the signals show up in dashboards and spreadsheets and stuff like this. But when you're first starting out, and I always tell this to people, like you, your signals end up being like hearing from people, seeing like what resonates and stuff like this. And when you start to mix in too much of the inorganic stuff, in my view, early on, the risk is you're going to miss signals. Yep. And I, what's, what is, I know some media companies do this, but we have a dashboard that shows the creators, the organic growth. To me, when they ask me like, Hey Adam, what's the number one thing I should focus on? That's what I tell them. And, and then when this is like how our model works is it's like, well, how do I grow organically? And I'm like, look, you got to be active on Twitter. You got to be active on LinkedIn. You got to encourage people to share in their newsletter, write great content. Like it's all around content and personal brand. Like write a hell of a newsletter where people share yeah. it and then also distribute those ideas on social to introduce it to new people. And like, that's how you grow. And then you start to take a step back and you're like, well, some people are terrible copywriters on social. Some people are scared of it. Like it, it, they have like a fear of it or have been harassed before. Other people just don't have time. And then that's like where the work week model comes in of like, well, how can we supplement that, right? How can we help uh, take some of these things off your plate and build these ecosystems around you in the same way where Jimmy Fallon has an entire team around him to support him, but he is the face and brand. Can we do that with B2B uh, operators and creators? Yeah. So right now the revenue model is it's all ads. Uh, we have, uh, no, we have, uh, a few different lines of revenue. We have, we have advertising, uh, we have, uh, education, uh, guides, courses, programs, uh, et cetera. We have events. Uh, we threw a pretty big event in New York in May, which is some sponsor, some of it's super sponsorship heavy. I am, I don't know when this podcast is going to come out. Uh, I haven't invited you, but I'm going to throw a little, uh, <laughs> executive summit in New York, uh, for media operators, uh, about 20 or 30 of us. So we do events. Uh, we have job stuff, uh, and a few other kind of minor, more minor categories today. But over time, uh, we will have a pretty, uh, balanced book where about 35% of revenue is advertising. Okay. But like our, look, we've, we talked about Substack, right? And Substack has optimized its entire model around around subscriptions, something that I was bitching yeah. to you about before we began this podcast, because yeah. 
there's a bunch of different downstream stuff that that makes the product uh, a little challenging. And I've shared this with them. Uh, are you less bullish on, because look, I always joke that the media business is like a children's soccer game. Everyone just like chases the ball, a clump of kids around one ball, one part of the field. A clump of kids is all around subscriptions these days. I'm sort of, again, in between, like, I think there's too many people going into subscriptions with low engagement products. But like, how do you view that? Do you view that as an important part of the model uh, long term? Uh, I, I'm not a big believer in uh, paywalling uh like B2B content in general. I think the more accessible you make it, one, I think the more idea sharing that can happen, the more successful you can, I mean, this sounds like foo-foo, but you can like higher chance of growth GDP if more people fucking knew how to grow businesses. So why would we pay all that and keep it to people that can afford it? And so that's something we believe. It also though, from a monetization front, uh, to your point, there's, I don't believe in subscription fatigue if the content is great, but there's actually, if your content is great and people keep reading and it's free, your monetization opportunities are way more than just a subscription fee to me. And so that's kind of how I see this is what else can we do to support this audience? What other problems can we help them solve? And that might be, that might be a course or a guide that might be an event that might be like literally just like a happy hour. It doesn't matter. But I think uh, if you have affinity or you call it high engagement, the opportunities are endless and the, having it free, you have a bigger top of funnel. And like, I know that's not a journalistic term, but like the real, the reality is like, that's I love funnels. You, what are you talking just, about? Well, uh, I once told a journalist that uh, I see newsletters like as a financial instrument, as a top of funnel. And they're like, no, this is like quality journalism. I'm like it is. And it's also this. I think and, it's middle of the funnel though. Okay. Top of the funnel I, is top of the funnel is like social media and stuff, the sure. threads and whatnot. Like yeah. those really work, right? They, I, they do. Uh, you, <laughs> I can't stand threads. You know that, Adam. I know, but they, they do help. Everyone uh, out there, if I'm doing a thread that like growth is desperate. totally ground to a halt. <laughs> <laughs> I look, I think there's cheesy ways to grow and there's successful ways to grow, but you're tell me the cheesy ways. I think threads are cheesy at times. I think a lot of people do like low engagement threads. It's the same way of like newsletters. What, you mean like, like ripping off like Wikipedia, Wikipedia and stuff pages? like this? Yeah, exactly. 98% yeah. of people don't get this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, that was a little bit of a side. What were we talking about? Uh, <laughs> we were talking about paid subscriptions. And I'm <laughs> yeah. just not a big believer. I do think though, when we introduce subscriptions, uh, one, we have this ghostwriting service uh, that's now a subscription, which is a B2B product, which we really like. Uh, to help people like you that hate being on Twitter, but realize that. Uh, I, was, I saw that, like, you said that you've used this for your tweets? For, like, five months and no one knew. Yeah. So explain this to me because, like, I'm, like, I'm out there. I'm, like, I've been living in Miami, so I'm a little, like, like all, yeah. like, food and life. whatnot. Yeah. Like, yeah. And uh, although I'm moving back to New York, so I'm going to get, like, 80% more cynical. But the the thing, it's, like, shouldn't that be more personal? Like, I just feel like you can't optimize everything. I Well, there's definitely, it doesn't you're not giving up your Twitter account. Like, I still very much, like, tweet very personal things. The difference is that, like, People need to realize that if you're like, it's a way, it's such a shame that your newsletter is not distributed in more places because it's so good. Like that is an issue. And I also I believe know. that like to become, to, to actually have the consistency and cadence and to do a platform, like it's just helpful if someone does it for you. Like Ellen DeGeneres does not do any of her stuff online. And like people think <gasps> she's hilarious, right? And like a shocker. Uh, and like George Washington didn't write his farewell speech. That's like the most famous presidential speech uh it's i think just trump's like, right trump is writing a lot of these tweets yeah i think okay, i gotta it, say he has defined history once again but i uh i it's not an uncommon thing to do and it's we only work with people that are already creating some sort of content right it's not like we're like making things out of thin air but charlie basically would take my newsletters turn it into a thread I give him another idea that i want to work on we meet like once a week and then boom he'd do it and i was like hey i know the friends uh contract thing was like pretty unique situation at the time creators probably like that yeah turned into a thread gave me like 700 newsletter subscribers really? uh, yeah shit man i might come around to it i know it, it, it is uh also ego like i've woken up on saturday mornings <laughs> before where he like schedules a tweet at like eight in the morning and yeah. i wake up and i'm like but i think the, que wait. the question i have then with that and just the, the overall with the model is like are you getting the right people right so like i mm. see like the numbers is like this has grown seventh i'm like there are not like first of all i see like things of like marketing brew we have two hundred thousand. 
uh, marketing decision maker. I'm like, first of all, there's not 200,000 marketing decision makers, I don't think, out there. But like, yeah. secondly, like, you don't, I've done it, like, you, you don't do that, like, organically and reach, like, the top people. Right. So, like, a lot of B2B models, the reason that you don't need big numbers is because you Agreed. need the right people. So if yep. you're not, you can have bullshit numbers, not you personally, but like yep. one can have bullshit numbers. There's lots of different ways. Like even like Substack with the recommendations thing, like I'm monitoring it, but like there's too many Gmail addresses in there for my yeah. taste. I like seeing business addresses. Agreed. Yeah. So, uh, audience quality one, uh, there's, there's certain audiences. Like I'll use climate tech in my newsletter for media. They're TAM on those if you're crushing it, like 20, 30,000 right now, like based on what's out there, like that would be pretty big. If I like expanded to like ad agency world, like maybe like 30, 40, 50,000, like that's probably like the biggest it could get. Uh, marketing get money. You can get bigger than that. Maybe I can get bigger, but uh, I won't. We had like 130,000 subscribers to Digiday's email. All right. Well, there you go. When I look at like marketing millennials, I think it's in the millions. It's just like a broader, more marketing approach thing. When I look at Sharma's D2C specifically, mostly like people focus on D2C growth, another like 50 to 100,000. The way that we think about that and like that's right now, if you look at the growth of our newsletter, the it's matching TAM. Like it's the climate's only at like 7,000 or something. It's not, they're not like exploding because like trying to find the right people. I also think the way that you test this is with events and taking mm -hmm. action. So like Climate Tonight, he's hosting his first happy hour uh, and had a huge, uh, pretty good attendance rate for our registration rate for what I expected. Um, yeah. Nicole, same thing, like sold out an event in May. And you're like, these are the signals that you want to like yeah. look for. That's the signal. Um, like getting people yeah. to like take any kind of action is like yeah. an important signal, particularly yeah. early on. And if you can get people to not to turn out and to want to connect with each other, then that doesn't mean you have a community, but it makes it more likely that you have a community and yeah. not an audience. Well, I wrote a huge piece. You'd appreciate this. I wrote a huge piece about community uh, in my newsletter and yeah, uh, I read it. someone wrote back and was like, Hey, you define this completely wrong. <laughs> and I, and uh, it was like someone that runs a, like a web three uh, media company. Oh, and I was yeah. like, Oh, uh, tell me why he's like, well, community is very simple. It's just, if your audience self organizes, you have a community. And I really always love that. Um, I've yeah. appreciated that definition since then because that is the best signals. Like if you have people that are like, hey, let's meet up here. Let's do this thing. That means like you're actually like creating some sort of connection through your content. Yeah, no, I think that's the that's absolutely the key. And that's why events to me are like, I look at it as like a triangle where it's newsletters, podcasts, and then events live. Yeah, we'll do, uh, we'll do 33 events this year. Oh my God, you guys do a lot of stuff at scale. It's uh, and what's fun about this is that's like another thing I always ask myself is like, if I was doing this on my own, what could I do? And like Nicole, we rented out the Roxy in New York. It was like 20 grand to rent it out. It's a big venue, hard to sell. We got a bunch of sponsorships. Like then she showed up and hosted it and it was an amazing night and her audience loves her and like all that stuff. And, and that's kind of the stuff that makes you tick uh, for what we're doing here. Okay. So you're going to, I, I want to be mindful of time because we don't want to yeah. go too long. So what are you going to end the year at in revenue? Oh, I'm not sure if I'm ready to, <laughs> to say that You one. can do whatever you want. I know. I'm not sure if I want to yet. Uh, <laughs> Why? We'll, it sounds like it's going great. It is. Uh, it is. I think there's uh, there's definitely, I mean, you can start to do the math of like where <laughs> we're growing. If 45 people will spend 30% of revenue on paid growth, uh, probably by the end of the year, uh, which is pretty aggressive and still reach profitability, we should cross seven figures a month by end of year. Okay, cool. And like what, so what verticals, like you're more into marketing than I would have thought you, you were going to be. Yeah, no, I mean, not like marketing, like you guys have a lot of marketing newsletters. We do. Yeah, that was pretty purposeful, uh, both from a fuck up that we had early and then uh, <laughs> uh, a realization. We went to market with, Cannabis, franchising, fintech, and climate tech. Yeah. Terrible idea. Uh, it wasn't a terrible idea. All these people are amazing, but there's just no connection. Jacob Donnelly wrote this the week we launched. He was like, there's no way that they ever make any money. It wasn't wrong that like, it's a lot harder to 
those conversations are drastically different when you're pitching franchise, healthcare, fintech, yeah. et cetera. And so he was definitely right there. We did get more focus and we started doing what we call like a pod strategy where now we have three fintech writers and doing more and more. So it just makes it easier. Yeah. With marketing, uh, one, uh, bringing on Nick uh, was a, we kind of called him like a light, what we identified as like a lighthouse. Like it just, he just like shined a whole light on the whole community and brought, we, the amount of inbounds, I mean, 30, 40 different Substacks reach out to us like within weeks uh, saying like, hey, we'd love to work with you. So we kind of had a pick of who we wanted to work with, which was great, allowed quality to be higher. And then the second thing is like marketers just create an absolute flywheel for a business early on because the inbounds that we get then to spend more money, they love talking about shit on social uh, with a share higher amounts. They just live and breathe on the internet. The good uh, So yeah. it just allowed the business to Focusing on marketing allows our business to essentially have more efficiencies than if we like go super deep on climate or franchising. Okay, so you're like this pod strategy. So I got a crazy idea. Why don't you build brands specifically to those areas? Because that defeats the whole purpose. I think like <laughs> that. So like you'll see like the Wolf of Franchises now has his own website. We're spinning up a few others. Over time, the goal of this is not to have these people just like live under the work week umbrella. I already say very much is like we want Nicole to be known for she says in her profile like I'm the founder of what the fintech the wolf is the founder of the wolf of franchises over time we see these as in many ways like these creators are running in some ways their own business they just have a huge support team to help them and we're allowing them to build their own brand and it'll be a, and a house of brand strategy is something I very much believe in versus doing yeah. a, a one brand like a morning group yeah but like why won't they just graduate then and like leave you behind I mean, because that's like, because that's yeah. what I wonder, are you an ad network? Are you not like, because like, uh, when you're, when people are talking about like, this is like when I think when you shared the idea, I was like, well, who owns the list? Who owns yeah. the IP? Because, uh, you know, to me, that's the test, right? If you don't, if you own the list, then okay, you've got, I, the I think there's value. a lot of like, so what I did was like, look at what has, this is what like the honest conversation that needs to happen is like, what do media companies do really well? for specifically creators what are the writers whatever you want to call them. what do they do well for them uh and then what do platforms do really well like why are platforms attracting talent the reality is they both also have a lot of cons graduation yeah. rate of platforms is one of they kind of graduate off of each other because of the lack of growth to your point earlier platforms they don't individualize basically any support help to get sub <laughs> you're still waiting for Substack to get back to you no they got uh, back from, to me uh, yeah. Uh, and media companies, lots of people around you, but you're kind of told what to do. You have direction. What work week and we've been like people like love to hate it. It is what it is. They've been like, oh, well, are they a media company? Are they a platform? And it's like, like I said, we're trying to like do something totally differently. I don't define us. I like to say media companies. So one day we can just be really a successful media company and define, redefine the narrative. But uh, we took a lot of the strengths of both of these and allowed, and I think it's creating a solution where creators are like, holy shit. I, uh, if you look at what I have a slack from a, a creator from like two weeks ago, he's like, I just don't understand why I have this opportunity. It's like so good. I feel like incredibly lucky. Nicole posts publicly about that a lot. And the reason why is like, we listened to what they actually wanted. And I think like, it's funny to hear operators always talk about like, we focus on the content, focus on the content. But actually what that means is like focus on the people and no one wants to say that. And what we did was we focused on the people and said, well, why do you love Substack when we took those things out? Well, why do you hate it? And we, okay, let's not do that. Well, why do you love working in a media company because of this? Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. And we, every structure and every creator is different because what we're saying to them, Alex Johnson lives in middle of nowhere, has three kids, supports his family. His needs are very different than uh, uh, Nick Sharma, who's running a full-blown agency and has like eight staff members working for him. Like his needs are different. So our deal structures are different. But, okay, and so you do different deals with, it's not like a- Every person okay. has a different deal. Like every single, there's not a single one that you're like rinse and repeat. And I think that's a huge advantage for us. Because that's the stuff that like regular media companies sort of don't do. Do. Like I yeah. think the most extreme example is like, is the New York Times. They sort of do with the op-ed page, but yeah. like ultimately they need to, they don't need to, they can do whatever they want. They're very, pro they're very, uh, they're doing a good job. They're nicely profitable. 
But like, I just feel like that model is just is not going to work with putting the individual at the forefront. Like, it's just not going to work. It's just a different model. Yeah, it is. And like, we're not, uh, I said this to someone early, but I was like, in many ways, I don't see us competing with really anyone. Like, if you want to just like go write a substat, I'm not trying to have a thousand, 10,000 writers on my platform. I'm also not trying to like save the world with journalism. Uh, like we're not in any of those spaces. And for me, what I like hope to have happen is, hey, I want to be known for saying, hey, 80% of our creators make $250,000, $300,000 plus a year. They get to choose everything that they do. They have total creative freedom. They love their life. They have a complete survival kind of baseline. And then uh, I love for over time, like a couple of them to start to, to be some of the highest paid kind of creators in the country. And that's kind of the idea. Okay. I could do this all day, but I'm going to leave it there. Adam, thank you so much. I know. Fun. Yeah. I, as always, got to have you back for my podcast because uh, yeah, everyone anytime. tuned in. <laughs> Thanks a lot for listening to that conversation. Up next, I have a 10 minute bonus conversation with Steve Lilly of Bombora about why publishers should be out there kissing a whole bunch of frogs in advance of the demise of the third party cookie. Trust me, it makes sense in context. We're actively coaching all of our partners that you should be engaging with everybody out there that is proposing to have a solution out there for you know, a cookie list or just a more proactive um, data manager side or just saying, look, now is the time to be getting and building the skill sets that will allow you to be nimble in, in a cookie list context. I think the other thing too is that this is a cliche term that I've thrown about and Brian, you've heard me say this before, but you know, the an audience as an asset is certainly bound to appreciate as cookie-less comes to be, because where else are you going to find authenticated users at scale? And so if silver is becoming gold or this asset is guaranteed to appreciate, it seems like there's no better time to be making investments, trying new things, even things that seem like the high-risk end of the portfolio, if you will, because there's been no greater time to reap a return in the value of any improvements on capturing uh, users, authenticated audience, but also just figuring out strategies that can allow you to have greater resolution on unknown audience that don't rely on third-party cookies. And those things aren't just sitting out on the shelf. And so I think it just it's just hard to imagine that you're going to hope your way into a differentiated position in a cookie-less context if you're just waiting on the major players ad tech to kind of tell you what true north is before you start making decisions. There's a human aspect to data transformation that I think we took for granted when we started the co-op, which was, hey, we're going to give you this tremendous amount of high quality aggregate data that allows you to have cost-effective, higher resolution on your audience. And we figured out oh, tomorrow they were going to be printing money with that. In many cases, nine months later, still getting people's heads around, how do we take a holistic approach and talk about data? The, Catch-22 of data, and I'll be quiet here in a second, but is that it requires greater accountability. You're using data to say, this is directionally what we should be doing from a planning standpoint, right? Then you're driving the activation, and then you have to hold yourself to a higher level of accountability. And that's a scary thing to do. And so data, when done well, drives better business outcomes or data-centric strategies, when done well, drive a better business outcome from the publisher that they find the most valuable subsets of their audience more effectively, and they drive a better business outcome for the advertiser, but it also comes with greater accountability. And I think, you know, what people forget is not just signing up a platform and getting access to the data. It's, it's the human component and process that goes along with it that allows you to be more effective in an arena now that is to some degree less forgiving, greater rewards, but also greater accountability. And maybe that's part of what slows the transition, yeah. even in the face of something emergent like cookie block. Well, I think it's also just, a, it, I love that you brought in the human dimension because oftentimes that's missing when we talk about data and data is just basically just a proxy for humans, but we forget about the humans to some degree. But on being able to make that data useful and to truly have like data transformation within an organization, it requires like an organizational challenge, right? Like, I mean, you have to, be able to have like a culture that that 
uses that has true data i'm going to like lapse into some sort of clichés but like has true like data centricity and doesn't just use it as a crutch like we've always we've all seen like data come in at the end right and just like be used to justify hunches guesses biases and whatnot yeah i think it's exactly that i mean i kind of said it in the beginning right it's one thing to espouse being really investing in a data strategy versus really being data centric and putting the people and processes in place to use data to tell a truly differentiated story, to really highlight where unique value exists and drive a premium for it as, as is justified. Yeah. And so that, like, that yeah, I yeah. remember we've talked before about this data storytelling, like explain what that yeah. actually is. Cause they're usually well, held in opposition, right? Yeah, we, what we learned, so we launched a managed service uh, function because we realized that we were struggling on our time to value. So we were delivering these fantastic data resources that had all kinds of potential malleable applications for the most niche B2B pubs to large, uh, massive international B2B media companies and all the way up to household names in, in business news. And, but there was always this challenge of that, that person that could look at it holistically and be a conduit, be a transmission between the ad, the ad operations, the execution, the basic insights on how did a program function and then tying it back to what, where is the unique first party value that the publisher brings to the table and then making those insights marketable from either an upsell looking at post campaign reporting, right? or arming sales to do that thing that everybody in media is always talking about is how do you help the salespeople be more consultative and yet they don't have their hands on the levers where you actually see the data, you actually do the analysis. They often get positioned unfairly as sort of a two-legged stool that just has the information that media planning has provided them. And that's a failure of people in process to really figure out what is our data-centric product offering here and how are we going to run reports and insights that are done a la carte or customized for, for each advertiser in a way that sales can take it to market, deliver those insights, ad tech, pardon me, the ad ops team can execute. And then you've got a post-contract insights that really says, hey, we delivered on what we said we were going to deliver. We met those targets and here's how we delivered greater value. Yeah. Here's how we delivered greater performance. Yeah. And here's why you're going to write a check yeah. for 25% more. And that's actually hard to do. And it's not necessarily the systems and the data. It's how people work with one another to translate value sort of through, through that value chain. And what we found is that for folks that hadn't turned that corner or are still trying to figure out what does data transformation mean is that they didn't have that data czar, if you were, that, that literally a transmission between the wheels and the engine and the gas tank to really deliver value. And so um, what we're always coaching people is recognize that it's ultimately got to tell a story with data to create differentiation, to identify value and then prove where you've delivered greater value. And uh, that comes down to sort of this, you're really pulling together a lot of different skill sets that I think are traditionally siloed into a unique kind of role that can, can pull those assets together and make it a repeatable sort of mass customization process that still delivers uh, that customized value. And that was always the weak point for us was finding the person that could play that role or where necessary with all the pieces in place, we had to sell a managed service contract to play that role on their behalf while they figured out who would fill that gap. I think that's the, the one thing that what's interesting is when you find that role, you find that data strategy moves much more quickly than it had previously. You really need to see that person that has that vision from sales to activation and measurement on the backside to create continuity that really delivers on the value of what we all know is possible with data, but isn't necessarily just there for the taking if you don't have the human resources and process in parallel, if that makes sense. Sorry, yeah. that's one word. No, that makes a lot of sense. What I liked about what you said is like two things. One is like, you talked about storytelling, right? And you talked about differentiation. And both those things are core to brand, right? And that's yeah. what brand is about. And I think sometimes, particularly on the publisher side, when talking about data, they think it's the opposite of brand, right? It's the enemy of brand in some ways. And I think some of that is just scars from the way the ad tech industry sort of developed uh, over the first couple of uh, iterations. But I think that's changing. I mean, I, I was in 
can the other week. I like to mention that every now and again because I'm fancy. It's a newsletter impresario. Thank you for listening this week. We will be back next week with a new episode. The Rebooting Show is produced by Pod Help Us. Podcasts are a great way to expand your client base. Pod Help Us lets you focus on having engaging conversations, giving your brand the full stack of services needed for a professional look and sound. Start your podcast today at podhelp.us.